Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a little pop quiz. Do you think Red Wings tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the game? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is the leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. Hey everybody, I'm Max Boltman, Red Wings beat writer from The Athletic. It is a beautiful, dreary day in Detroit, Liverpool is pouring it on, and we are here to record our first ever episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast. Uh, Normally, we're going to do things a little bit differently than this. Normally, our midweek show will be behind The Athletic paywall, Uh, but today we're doing this one on a free. Normally, our Monday shows are all going to be free. Uh, and so we are going to just dive right in. I'm going to bring in my my wonderful co-host, Prashant Iyer. How are you doing, Prashant? Well, unlike you guys, it is a balmy 100 degrees down here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's the perfect weather for hockey season. So doing as well as you can with that level of humidity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we've got a really good show, I think, today. So we're, we're going to start with the Dylan Larkin news, which admittedly we don't have a whole lot more update on. And, and by the time this airs, there may even be a little bit more known. We're going to play a little bit of catch up on the preseason and training camp, who stood out to you. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about a couple of prospects in particular who are bound for Grand Rapids, uh, what to expect out of them in their under 20 AHL seasons, uh, get into a couple expectations for the season. We'll take some questions. And uh, and we will wrap it up nice and smooth. So we we can uh, let's let's just dive in right away with Dylan Larkin, uh, which was certainly not the sight anybody wanted to see on the uh, basically the second practice of the season. He leaves the ice early. It was kind of a weird thing. It was uh, on the far side of the ice, so I didn't have a great look at the play. But yeah, basically from what I understand, it he, he kind of went down weird. Didn't seem like a huge scary thing and, and he left the ice but Prashant if they're without Dylan Larkin for any serious length of time uh, what are the ramifications for the Red Wings? I mean I think the ramifications are that a team that's already projected to be near the bottom of the NHL is now without their best player You're talking about a team that you know if this was soccer would be we'd be discussing relegation scenarios here so Larkin's obviously the most important piece to the wings and if he's going to miss any extended time I mean while some people may consider that a kind of a lucky break in the sense that the wings are in a rebuild. Any draft pick towards the top may help. Um, It's going to be a painful sight for a lot of wings fans if he's out for an extended period. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously the, the effect on their, you know, on ice results is going to be rough. It's also going to be brutal on just trying to compose the lineup. Like they finally have this top line that has all this chemistry and, and everyone's really excited about with Larkin between Tyler Bertuzzi and Anthony Mantha and potentially two into the year, there's a scare. Now, we don't want to get too into the speculation phase, especially because there, there should hopefully be some news by Thursday morning's practice. But, uh, but certainly that is the topic in, in Red Wings land right now and one that has major ramifications for the season. 
Uh, let's let's walk it back now a little bit to the preseason because this is our first show. We haven't gotten to talk to some of the, some of our listeners about what we took away from from the preseason and training camp. So who who really stood out to you over the course of basically two weeks of nonstop preseason hockey? You know, I think the probably most encouraging thing is the player that impressed me the most was Moritz Sider. I was blown away by his composure with the puck, really his composure in all the scenarios. You could tell just when you watched him that pressure didn't really bother him, which I think is something that over the last few years we've really seen be a big issue for the Red Wings defensemen is that when the forecheck got in tight, when the pressure was really applied and the standard passing lanes were taken away, the mantra became chip it up the boards, chip it up the boards. And you saw a lot of just basically throwing the puck away from our defensemen to get it up the ice and out of the defensive zone. And that ultimately led to more and more chances coming back in. And so watching Sider was almost a breath of fresh air. He was very composed, very relaxed. He found ways to change passing angles, change passing lanes, found ways to join the rush. Yes, he did make a couple of mistakes that did result in goals. And those are obviously things that the coaching staff is going to take back and watch and talk to him about. But in the games where he wasn't paired with Trevor Daly, you could have argued that he was the best player for the wings, you know, in the lineup. So I think that's a really encouraging sight for Wings fans. Yeah, it was really interesting because I, I asked Jeff Blaschel a couple of days ago what what kind of directions he gave Cider when he sent him down to Grand Rapids. You know, in the past, when when we've heard the Red Wings send a guy down, they'll tell him one or two things they really want him to work on, whether it's penalty killing. With, with Dennis Chalowski, for example, it was closing down plays in the defensive zone and having more urgency. So I was curious what the answer was going to be. The answer was basically nothing. They just want game experience for him. I mean, they, they said he is so hockey smart that the only thing he really needs to adjust to is what he can and can't get away with at the pro level. So basically, you, you talked about how, how patient he was with the puck. Sometimes they felt like maybe he was just a little bit too patient, letting the forechecker get too deep in him, hoping that he could spin off and then, and then make an even better play when really there was a, a perfectly good play to be made. So really, it's just finding that balance of what he can and can't get away with uh, because certainly it's it's – you know, he, he is going to be someone who can use that patience to his advantage. I think I remember as far back as draft night, that being something they really liked about him is, is how kind of cool in the face of pressure he was picking passes and, and, and finding lanes. So the fact that I think they really just want to see game experience from him and, and no real major flaws he has to iron out immediately uh, is, is a huge positive out of the preseason for, for a guy they just spent a massive draft asset uh, with the number six overall pick on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're talking about flashing back to draft night and everyone being thrown for a loop when Sider's name is called and there's a number of big name forwards still on the board, um, it was it's refreshing to know and kind of have that faith maybe be a little bit restored. Yes, it's the preseason. Yes, it's very early, but just to the naked eye, he looks like a like like an NHL defenseman, um, something that the Wings really haven't been able to trot out. Um you know, since Nick Lindstrom retired and Brian Rafalski left and Cronwell's knees started to break down, you haven't really had that composed puck moving defenseman. And so I think that's a really exciting sign. Yeah, that, that's certainly, the, you know, the, the trajectory they think he's on is, is that of a, of a really good player, but they're just going to give it its time to, to let it play out in, in real time. They're not going to rush it along. So I think that explains the Grand Rapids move as well as anything. Another guy that I think you and I both thought had a pretty standout preseason is another guy who this one actually made the roster. That'd be Tara Hirose. A guy who came up late last season, got a cup of tea with the 
you know, nine, 10 games there and, and really produced. And the question all off season was, can he keep this up uh, through a handful of preseason games? Uh, are you feeling any better about Tara Hirose being able to sustain that? Yeah, I think Hirose is another guy just similar to Sider that shows a lot of hockey IQ. You know, the puck seems to find him. The, the pace of play seems to slow down to what he is skating at, which I think is a high level skill that um, really the elite talent players tend to have is they're able to control the pace of play. And he always finds his way to the puck. And like I said, the puck is always finding him. And so I, I'm actually really excited about his prospects moving forward. You know, my uh, as you released your bold predictions uh, the other day, one of the bold predictions I have for the season is that Hiroshi's top three on the team in scoring. Wow. Um, and so if you if you want to do the math, that means I'm saying he is slotting behind Larkin. You can decide who's going to be number two between Athanasiu and Mantha, but I'm, tell, I'm telling you he's going to outscore one of them. I think he just has that level of IQ, and if he gets put into those scoring opportunities by playing on that second line or the third line, which it looks like he may get that shot, um, I think watch out because I think he has the chance to rack up a lot of points. Yeah, he's such a good playmaker. I mean, what interests me about kind of the way that they feel like his game has grown, the, the two things that realistically he probably needed to get better at were his skating, because it's it's pretty hard to be a guy that small and get by without pretty good skating, and just doing anything to his game that would make it not so obvious he was going to pass, basically become more of a shot threat. And that's something that the coaches have talked about for sure. So I, I think to my naked eye, I think he looks maybe a step quicker. Um, I know that probably a billion people by now have said that, but, uh, but, it, but I, I think it's true. Uh, and then especially on the power play, it's, it's huge for him to have made any kind of progress with, with a shot threat. I, I, you know, how much it really, it really shows up to be in the regular season. We'll see, but if you're going to have a guy, especially in a flank position on the power play, you can't have that guy. Everyone know that he's not going to shoot the puck, or if he does shoot the puck from their perimeter, it's an easy save because then it allows the defense to play a lot more conservatively to the pass. So him adding any level of shot threat is is a is a big deal if it if it bears itself out in the regular season. I think that's what could get him into that tier where he is one of the top scorers on the team. Uh, and and I think you know I I don't know if I agree with with top three, but I certainly think he can be one of their most impactful forwards. And and he's he is one of the reasons why I think their power play will improve this year because I think he opens up a lot on that on that second unit. Yeah, he really does remind me a little bit of what Gus Nyquist had morphed into by the end of his time with Detroit, where he was, you know, a little bit more patient with the puck. He, the puck just seemed to find his stick. He was able to find these passing lanes, but didn't really shoot the puck a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, he kind of reminds me of a little bit of that version. Um, not saying he's necessarily at Nyquist talent level, but I think he has the ability to fill that role or that that kind of concept. Yeah, it, it's really fun to watch him, in, in especially in really structured s- scenarios like the power play, because from our view in the press box, right, it's, it's bird's eye, it's right over top. You can really see plays developing, which is one of the most fun parts about it. Um, and I, I know a lot of people who go to LCA, uh, the, there's a lot more crowded in the upper bowl seats maybe than, than shows up on TV in the lower bowl. But I also think those people in the upper bowl are getting a pretty good vantage point for how the plays are coming together. And one of the things you'll notice with Hiroshi from that view is there will be a play developing, usually on the power play, and the puck will be going toward Hiroshi. And, and you'll kind of wonder, ooh, is he going to try that? And, and he does. And, and it's it's fun to watch him work. Uh, you know, he's, he's clearly a very smart player. Um, I also want to go to the flip side, though, and see who, who are the guys this preseason that maybe didn't live up to your expectations or or raised a little bit of an alarm bell for you watching them. Yeah, I mean, I, 
I think you're going to have to eventually address the elephant in the room. And it's the fact that Philip Sedina didn't score in the yep. preseason once again. Um, and when you obviously points aren't a perfect way to measure a player's impact in hockey. We like to look at how they impact the opportunity to score, if you will. And so that's where we look at different shot ret, uh, shot metrics. We look at things like expected goals and basically things that are shown to be impactful towards future scoring. Even in those categories, his performance still ranks near the bottom of the team. Now, uh, he was put in more difficult situations. He was often matched against uh, the opposition's top line. He was matched against the opposition's top defenders in scenarios, which often meant he was playing against the NHL players while the rest of his teammates were probably playing against um, AHL or career minor league players. And so he did have a little bit more difficult of a task. At the same time, though, it, it was a little discouraging to see that he wasn't able to influence the play in the way that you'd want, even in spite of the fact that he wasn't scoring. You're at least hoping he's having an impact on the rest of the game, on the shot share, on the quality of chances generated. And none of that really lived up. And so I do think you have to step back and say you are a little bit disappointed based on the hype that surrounded him, um, that he wasn't able to put together more in this small sample of games. Uh, so I don't know we'll kind of have to reconcile and we'll address this in a little bit, but what does that mean for him moving forward? Yeah. And, and, you know, I've been, I've probably been one of Zadina's biggest defenders. I've, I've, I've talked a lot about how the, the panic on him can, can get a little out of hand sometimes probably relating to where he was drafted, but you look at, at how the preseason went. Yeah. He did have a few chances to score, but, but I think the big takeaway I got was that sending him down was, was, was clearly the right call. And I think there's a couple of, of things that he really could stand to do to improve his game. And I, and I don't know that they're all short-term fixes. I, I think that the goals are going to come because I, I think that's he's, he's a scorer. He, he gets himself into opportunities to score. But in order for him to really drive an offense or, or drive scoring for himself, he's either going to have to find a way to get a little bit more explosive so he can separate from defenders as he rushes a net, or he's going to have to wait to get a, find, a, find, a way, find a way to get a little bit stronger to muscle himself into areas where he can score those goals. I think that he will have a harder time splitting defenders and getting in deep, which, which is realistically, that's where goals come. You know, even if, even if they're, you know, wrist shots, snapshots, you're probably not going to want to take them from the top of the circle, you know? And so I think those are things that really stood out this preseason as he did find a couple opportunities uh, where he was in good positions to shoot, where the puck just didn't go in. Um, he, I think he had a post late in the preseason. He had that one play, where Jordan Bennington just absolutely robbed him blind. I don't know that you can fault him on those two, but there are plenty of other times where when he's carrying the puck, there probably needs to be uh, a better ability to get in deep with it and, and not need to have someone kind of help create for him. Um, and those are the things that if you are going to be concerned with Philip Zadina, you're concerned with how much longer will that take? I don't think long-term you need to be worried that this, you know, this guy's not an NHL player, but uh you, you'd like to see the impact sooner than later, especially because he was not one of the younger guys in his draft year. He's 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 19 years old. He'll be 20 uh, in just a couple months here. So it, it, I'm not sounding the panic alarm. I've I've pushed against the panic alarm with Zadina, but uh, I also don't think you can say that it was a it was a super inspiring preseason from like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely, and I totally agree that I think it's too early to sound the panic alarm. You know, when we look at uh, kind of historical data on the amount of time it takes for different players to make the NHL. And when I'm saying make the NHL, I'm using Namita Nandakumar's definition of 40 games played. Um, you know, most first round picks that are forwards, 
you're expecting about 15% of them to make it in that first year after the draft. And now you're looking at about 30% at the second year. So there's still 70% of, you know, first round picks that haven't made the draft or made the NHL um, by the time of their second or third season. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily a sign that he's not going to make it or that he's going to struggle. However, the longer this does progress and really season two to three is where in her analysis, um, she found that the quality of forward really starts to drop off the longer it takes. When you start moving from two seasons needed to three seasons needed, it starts to become more and more apparent. So I do think we are looking for Zadina to make that stride this year. And there's a lot of things that Max just described that uh, that need to happen. And I think most importantly for me, we all have to remember that points, while great, they do put goals up on the board. Um, one player can't do it themselves. And so it does have to ultimately come down to can he impact the rest of the game? And I think that's what you know the Wings are looking for from him. Does he have the impact to control shots when he's on the ice, control quality of chances? None of that's played out so far. So I think he's got a lot of work to do. Absolutely agree that the AHL was the right call, but I don't know that you can sound the alarm and say he's not going to be a good NHL player. Yeah. So let's let's broaden this out then a little bit, and let's talk about Zadina in addition to Joe Valeno, Evgeny Svechnikov, and Morris Seider, and, and Michael Rasmussen. That is five of the last six first-round picks for the Red Wings, uh, all being sent down on basically, I think I don't know if it was the same day, but I think it was pretty much the same 24-hour span. Uh, what do you make of that decision? Was it the right call? And what is fair to expect from some of those guys in Grand Rapids? I think you've got some numbers on this. Yeah, I think that's a it's an interesting topic to look at because from one side you're disappointed that none of the first round picks, say for Dennis Jalowski in the last five years, made the big league team. At the same time, if you've looked at the makeup of the Grand Rapids Griffins for years, it's always been a heavy veteran mix with kind of a couple of prospects sprinkled in. And Detroit was, uh, and this is probably due to them more drafting from either Europe or other scenarios where they could leave players over there, but they really hadn't utilized the Griffins as a prospect development team, as opposed to just a combination of different players that they were going to just add a couple of prospects to. So I think from the flip side, one area where I am encouraged is they're actually going to use that Griffins team as a developmental team. You're seeing already early line combinations looking like Joe Valeno and, and Philip Zadina are going to play together on the same line, and you're going to give them veteran Matt Pumple, who's a great goal scorer down in the AHL, to kind of round that out. They put Rasmussen with a couple of you know, good defensive wingers. They've got Svechnikov playing with Kuffner, I believe, or um, a couple of other guys down there who also have some scoring ability. And so I think it's encouraging because you're actually going to see that Griffins team serve as a development team with maybe less of a focus on how do we grind out wins and more of a focus on how do we develop certain skills. So I think I'm really encouraged seeing that. And as far as, you know, what we should expect, I think it's, it's tough because when we're talking about the forwards, there haven't really been a whole, you know, there hasn't been a ton of under 20 forwards that have really stepped into the AHL and dominated. And so when we're talking about guys like Valeno, like Zadina, you know, we shouldn't be expecting them to walk in there and be point per game players. If you look at it, you know, since the lo the last lockout in 2012, 2013, 
only three guys have three or four guys have really been able to play at a point per game pace in the AHL and be under 20 years of age. And that's Miko Rontanen, David Pasternak, Will and uh, William Nylander. Otherwise, no one else has really done that. So I think it's saying that, all right, if you're not at that level, where do they really fit in? Zadina's scoring total last year, relatively comparable to guys like Kasperi Kapanen, Elias Anderson, and Andre Burakovsky, a little bit lower than Kevin Fiala. And then uh, one name that uh, Max actually brought up as a potential comparison was Philip, uh, Philip Forsberg, um, who but, uh, has busted into the league with Nashville and has really come to be to a great player. And so I think if you're trying to round out your projection, I think a solid year for our Valeno and Zadina from a scoring standpoint is somewhere around that 0.6 to 0.8 points per game mark. Really anything better than that, you're talking about being in the top 10 to top 15% of uh, under 20 AHL scorers as forwards. So I think that's probably a reasonable expectation for the forwards up there. Svechnikov's a little bit of a different case given that he's now going back for his third full year given that he missed the year last year um, back down in Grand Rapids. He's much older than the other guys. We should be looking for a more complete game from Svechnikov. Again, I don't know that he's ever going to amount into that top six scoring forward that you want, but an encouraging sign um, from the preseason was that when he was on the ice, the Wings did control the shot share. They did control the quality of chances. He did have a way to impact the game, even though he himself wasn't the one generating the shots or generating um, you know, the shot assists, if you will. Yeah, Sveshnikov is interesting because because on one hand he's coming off the knee injury, so the the big thing with him is going to be comfort level. How uh, how confident is he basically in his own knee? How how pain free can he be? At the same time, developmentally he should be, especially mentally, able to just really run circles around some of these guys uh, in the AHL. Not, I mean, the AHL is a great league, and, and no one ever, I don't think, truly truly dominates it. But you'd like to see Svechnikov having played some NHL games, having played a lot of time in the AHL. You'd like to see him have a pretty quick ascent back to a a strong. I mean, he had a much better rookie season than he did sophomore season in the AHL. So I think you'd like to see him at least do what he did in his rookie season in order to feel confident. Now it might not happen right away because I do still think there's going to be some time on the knee. But uh, he closed out the preseason with with a goal and an assist in the NHL uh, against basically an AHL lineup. Uh, I think two points per game is obviously not reasonable, but you'd like to see him producing probably around that same kind of 0.8 number, given the fact that he's not maybe on that same elite player trajectory. Is that a fair expectation? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's definitely a fair expectation. And I think a lot of us do forget how good of a first year that he really had down in the AHL. And you really thought that he was going to be able to make the leap in the next year. And I think due to kind of the roster log jam and, you know, a couple of other factors. He wasn't necessarily able to ascend right after that first year. But, I mean, he had a really, really good year. He had 51 points in 74 games. You're talking that's right on that .7 uh, mark that we were just mentioning, and that was in his first year in the AHL. Um, so, you know, it's it's a little disappointing that he regressed in that second year and then really lost his third year last year. So you're kind of hoping he's able to at least regain that form that he had uh, that first year in, in Grand Rapids. Yeah. And not to keep going back to, to the bold predictions article I did, but I, I did predict him to play 30 NHL games because I think once he gets his legs under him in these first few months here, I think come the new year, he'll get a call up and a, and a chance to stick. I think that he will be, um, 
I think he'll be prepared mentally and physically after a couple months of adjustment uh, to do that. So he's a guy that I think you could see in the NHL this year. I don't, I don't know if that's a, a popular opinion or not. It, you know, it didn't necessarily feel like one, which is why I called it a bold prediction, but uh, yeah, he's certainly one to watch. Uh, I also wanted to talk about, you know, as, as we're getting into some of these numbers on, on the prospect performances and, and what's reasonable to expect Moritz Sider is about to be an 18 year old and a pretty young 18 year old in the American hockey league. What kind of precedent is there for that? And, and what's fair to expect from him? Yeah. You raise a, a fascinating question. Cause I think this is something a lot of us haven't really grasped yet, but if you take the AHO and you track them back uh, to the last 15 years, only five 18-year-old defensemen have played more than 15 games in a season going back at least 15 years. That's as far back as I went before I stopped counting because I was getting a little tired of going further and further back and not finding <laughs> anybody. Um, because most of the guys that have done it have actually been relatively recently. So Toronto has been a big proponent of this, uh, getting Rasmus Sandin last year and then Timothy Logren the year before. They've had both those guys uh, step into their AHL affiliate um, as 18-year-olds and actually demonstrate pretty reasonable success. Last year, Sandin uh, you know, clocked in at more than half a point per game uh, as a defenseman and was actually able to have a significant impact such that you know, Leafs fans are really excited about his prospects moving forward. Timothy Logren the year before was able to put up 17 points in 44 games. So again, he's coming in you know, right around that 0.3, 0.4 uh, points per game mark for a defenseman there. Prior to them, you have Oliver Kylington with Calgary back in 2015-2016, Hampus Lindholm uh, with Anaheim in 2012-2013, and then Slava Voinov with the Kings back in 08 and 09. And that's it. There's not really much of a precedent, but all five of those guys were actually pretty solid NHL defensemen or are pretty solid NHL defensemen or will be pretty solid NHL defensemen. So I think it's at least from a name name comparison bucket. It's a nice group to be a part of from a skill level perspective. And so I think I'm excited to see what he's able to do if he's able to get, you know, a handful of games in. It looks like he's starting right off the bat on the first pairing with Brian Lashoff, um, which Lashoff should provide a little bit of that steady defensive presence to allow Sider to really join the rush. So I'm really excited for him. There's not much of a precedence for it, but I think he has real potential to – put up numbers somewhere in between Logren and Sandin. Yeah. And it'll be interesting because, you know, I certainly think there's offense insiders game, but I don't even know if it's, if it's the strong suit of his game. So I think especially paired with Lashoff, that's, that has the potential to be a pair that gets some really tough minutes for the Griffins. If, if that is how things shake out, obviously we don't want to overreact to, to how the pairing shook out in one week of practice here. Right. But, uh, but yeah, if if that's indeed the pairing, and I I believe Lashoff was was uh, with Heronic for a while, or at least kind of mentored him a little bit in Grand Rapids. That's obviously been one of the the bigger developmental success stories in recent years for the Red Wings. So it makes a lot of sense to put to put Cider with him if that is indeed the direction they go. Uh, and and if that's the case, I think you're looking at, at potentially a a pretty strong showing for him if if he can if he can match what some of those guys have done. And and when uh, when all is said and done. The, the biggest thing they need from him is they need him to be a all minutes defender. So even if maybe the points don't come right away for him, I think being able to to go into the American league, having played a year with men in the DEL, um, he should be in position to succeed and succeed fairly quickly there. Uh, but let's, let's see what happens when the game start, I guess. And, uh, and we'll go from there. This is uh this is kind of the point of the show where I think we should maybe pivot a little bit into some questions from, from the audience. We uh, put out a little call on Twitter 
And uh, if you want to, in the future, submit questions for us, for those of you listening, I'm at M underscore Boltman, B-U-L-T-M-A-N on Twitter. And Prashant is at Iyer, I-Y-E-R underscore Prashant, P-R-A-S-H-A-N-T-H. We usually will put out calls on Twitter for questions, and that is definitely the best way to get in touch with us if you want yours read. Do you uh, do you have the, the, the responses up in front of you, Prashant, or were there any that really stood out to you? Yeah, I think one uh, one common question that we got was how does Steve Eiserman's impact uh, or arrival impact Jeff Blaschel's status for the season? And I think it's an important important question to talk about because if the wings do come out of the gate and they struggle a little bit, how do you think that impacts Jeff Blaschel's uh, you know status as the wings heads coach? Yeah, and, and it, you know that's it's one of the toughest ones to answer because it, it does depend on so many factors, right? Obviously, if 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 Dylan Larkin does miss any time, um, I think you basically have to throw all of the results out the window because of how what a, what a devastating effect that would have. But if if they're able to be at pretty full health and they struggle out the gate, um, you kind of have to look at where the struggles are coming from. I mean, this is a team that you know they're going to have a couple young guys, but it will be mostly composed of veterans it looks like on opening night uh and and where are the struggles coming from are they coming from from structure are they coming from just being out talent you know out, overmatched talent wise that's something that i think people mostly expect to be the case or are they playing close games i mean if, if this is a team that i think basically the best you can expect from them is to play as many tight games as possible have a have a pretty sound defensive identity and and try to squeak out the wins where they can i don't i don't think they can play run and gun with just about anybody so yeah, if they're getting blown out, it, it, it might become a question, especially since, you know, Eisenman is not the one who hired Blaschel. But I, I expect him to have uh, a, a decent, you know, a decent, you know, I, I hate to use the word leash because I don't like the idea of putting people on leashes <laughs> to, to, to borrow something that uh, Jim Harbaugh used to say when I was covering him. But uh, I think he'll have uh, a fair bit of slack, I guess, let's say, uh, understanding the context. But, but we also don't know. Iser, this is Eisenman's first year here in Detroit. Uh, and, and we'll see how he chooses to manage it. Do you have a, a take on that at all? No, I mean, I actually agree a little bit with what you said. I mean, if you take it back to his introductory conference, um, you know, Eisman really praised the work that Blaschel did. He mentioned um, the Calder Cup final a few years back where the Griffins were able to defeat um, the Lightning affiliate. Um, he mentioned that you, you saw a lot of growth of those young players last year, even though the results weren't there. You saw Dylan Larkin take a big step forward. You saw Athens Athanasiu hit the 30-goal mark. You saw Mantha, who would have hit the 30-goal mark had he not uh, broken his hand and missed 15 games. He would have been there right as well. So I think he, he talked a lot about the, the growth of the core players under Blashill, and so that's why I, I'm kind of firmly believing that Blashill is going to be given the whole season, really, knowing that there should be no expectation of how successful this team is and that you really should be measuring it on how the individual players that are going to be a part of that core how do those guys perform how do they respond how do they feel about them what's the locker room kind of atmosphere like I think those are all going to be the big markers for success not really anything outcome based for the Red Wings yeah and I think you nailed it when you when you talked about the development side I mean I know that one of the big controversies of last season that you know in the time, it kind of made sense, but looking back, it's kind of interesting to look back on 
was all of the drama surrounding, you know, when he kind of would scratch Dennis Chalowski. So one was obviously, it's pretty emotionally charged situation, right? Scratched him uh, in his first game back in Vancouver. And then there was a situation on, on this bobblehead night. I think that was the same. And those are kind of things that, that Blaschel can't necessarily control that those are, you know, that's the timing of it. Uh, and, and I think it would probably be a bigger indictment if, if he felt like it was a, a big deal to sit someone for their development and he was letting things like a bobblehead night uh, interfere with that. But, you know, that was one of the big dramas was how he handled Chalosky. And I think when you look at how Dennis Chalosky came into to this training camp in this preseason, I think you would have a hard time arguing that he's not a lot better at a couple of the things they really wanted him to get a lot better on. So I'm not saying that he's an, he's an un, unquestioned guru of development or anything, but I think when you look at sort of a, a coach in the situation that he's in with the this kind of the, the most important job being development and, and kind of finding a way to keep this team competitive, especially when you look at how they finished last year. I think he's got a little bit of a track record there that, that I do think, like you said, buys him quite a bit of, um, of sort of faith going in. I mean, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what it looks like, but I, I think I would tend to lean with you that, that the full season is probably the expectation here at minimum, but uh, we'll see how it goes. And I know, you know, a lot can change in hockey really fast as, as becomes clear every single year. Uh, one of the ones that, that stood out to me was who do you think uh, is the first forward up if there is an injury? So, so the, the, the asker, which is Peter uh, wanted to know, he, he thinks Rasmussen cause he was the last one sent down. But uh, is there anyone that stands up st- stood out to you that was sent down as being kind of the closest to being ready? Should there be a need in Detroit? Yeah, I, th- that's a really interesting question because I think it's a multi-part question in the sense that if you ask who's the most ready, uh, I think the guy that struck me with the most NHL-ready game is really Joe Valeno. I thought his game at least would be the most would be the easiest to just pick up, place in the NHL, and he could tread water. Um, now that doesn't necessarily mean he has the highest ceiling. That doesn't necessarily mean he's got the most capacity. I just think as of this point right now, he's got an NHL body, six foot one, 190 pounds. You could take him, you could plug his skating in, and he'd be fine. He would tread water. Um, but that's not really how the Wings have used their call-ups in, in years past. And so I don't necessarily know that he's the first guy up. I think it all depends on where the injury is. Is it a bottom six injury? Is it a top six injury, given the philosophy that they want those top prospects in Grand Rapids that when they come up, they want to give them a, a top-line role or a top-six role. Um, so if it's a bottom-six injury, I suspect you'll see you know more of a guy like a Matt Pumple, uh, a Dominic Turgeon, something along those lines, uh, which is what happened last year. But if it's more of a top-six injury, and for example, if Dylan Larkin is out for a while, um, you may see a guy like Michael Rasmussen get called up first just because he's they're trying to group him as a center and he has the most NHL experience, and he was the last one sent down, he might be the first guy I think is coming up in the event of a long-term top six injury. Yeah, and, and kind of like you're alluding to, position matters there too, right? Like they want Rasmussen at center. Uh, if it's a winger that goes down, I guess the options there are then, I don't think they're going to want to put him back at wing. So are, are you prepared to put Rasmussen at center and then uh, flex one of kind of your your sort of bottom six type, whether that's your Jacob De La Rose, your Christopher N., uh, something like that out wide. They've shown that, you know, at least in a couple of practices when there have been injuries, they they are willing to move a Valtteri Filppula to the wing if, if that's what the situation calls for. Um, I think Rasmussen's actually a decent candidate for that reason. I think 
they like him as a defensive center. Uh, and if, especially if it is a bottom six player, putting him up in the bottom six to play that checking role makes some sense developmentally and makes some sense for the team. So I will say Rasmussen for that. Um, but certainly, you know, I think there's a lot of variability in how that could play out. And, and it's a great question. Not, not one that I think there's necessarily an easy answer to. Um, the other one that I think stood out to me is, and this is one that maybe you could answer from, from a broader perspective or philosophically, and maybe it's too early to really say, but uh, Red Wing Rantings asks how Iserman's rebuild style has compared to other teams' rebuilding styles. And I don't know if maybe, what, I guess we're five, six months in here, there's a clear way to answer that. But are you sensing anything in his move so far that can kind of give you a trend for, for how he'll approach this? It's, you know, that's a fascinating question. Um, because if you look at the way he stepped into Tampa, you know, when he got to Tampa, he really hit, the, you know, he hit the ground running. Like as soon as he stepped in, he was hiring his own head coach. He was able to hire Guy Boucher. Then that same summer, he steps in, he re-signs Martin, Martin St. Louis, he signs Pablo Cabina, gets Dan Ellis, signs Brett Clark, trades for Simone Gagne, uh, trades for Dwayne Rolson, and then his team makes the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, he also, you know, is able to get a buyout in as well. And so he really hit the ground kind of running a lot of moves, but I think that team was in a very different place than where Detroit was. That team was a team with Steven Stamkos, with Victor Hedman. You had pieces that Detroit really doesn't have outside of Dylan Larkin. You can't really put Mantha or Athanasiu anywhere near Stamkos. Um, and there's really no one in the system like Hedman, at least that we know of yet. So I think his approach right now is an appropriate one in taking stock of what talent do I have? What contracts do I have? I've got a lot of contracts that are expiring at the end of the year. I don't really need to make a big rush. You know, at the end of this season, we're talking about Mantha, Athanasiu being restricted free agents, Bertuzzi, um, Hiroshi, and then you've got Green as an unrestricted free agent. You lose the contracts of Erickson, Daly. You've got Bowie as a restricted free agent, Howard. So I think relative to what he should be doing, I think this is exactly what he should be doing is let this season play out. This is a really strong draft. If you can land yourself in that top five pick range, um, which if the Wings do end up as one of the three worst teams, they're guaranteed to pick at six or higher, um, you're in shape to add a potentially franchise-changing player. I mean, the top five guys uh, really in the 2020 draft are exceptional. And you're then going to clear out a whole bunch of contracts. And you have another year of understanding what Mantha, Athanasiu are doing, what your guys in Grand Rapids did. Because if those guys go down there and they win the Calder Cup handily and you have a lot of talent there that looks really nice, then maybe that 2020 offseason is the time where you start adding those pieces from free agency or the pieces from trades uh, to make sure that you start to stockpile the right talent mixture uh, so that you can then make that one big splash to elevate the team. And so a model I like to follow is what Carolina did. It took them a while. They were bad for a while. But what they did is they bided their time. They took flyers on these guys that hit waivers. So, you know, they put in waiver claims for guys like Andre Nostrasho, Martin Furk. They wanted to see what these guys did. If they had anything, they picked up a cheap player. If they didn't, they sent them away. And they basically bided their time until they were able to turn over a lot of their bad contracts and until they were able to get some lottery luck. Then they get the number two overall pick. They get Andre Svechnikov, 
and then boom, they go out and get Dougie Hamilton. They get Calvin DeHaan, and then they make the conference finals. And so now then this summer, they're again able to be in that same bucket where they're making, you know, big time moves. And so I think that's how quickly things can change. And I think you have to be patient right now. And I think Eisman's doing everything exactly correct. Awesome. All right. Well, that's a, that's certainly a very thorough answer and something that'll be, that'll be great to monitor as, as the season plays out. Uh, I'm sorry, we didn't get to every single question. There's a lot of them, but keep sending them. We'll keep getting to as many as we can in episodes, but today I wanted to wrap up with, with some season predictions. Uh, so Prashant, do you have, I know you already teased one on Hiroshi, but, uh, any, any, any more predictions you want to make? Uh, what do you think, what do you think will happen this season? Yeah, so I the first one I threw out was that I think Taro Hirose, and again, keep in mind these are bold predictions, maybe not as realistic, but on the on the teetering on the edge of realism here, um, I had Taro Hirose finishing in the top three of Red Wings scoring, meaning that he's going to finish ahead of either Mantha or Athanasiu. Um, I do think he has that level of talent. I think another prediction, or kind of again teetering on reality, is that I think Cider actually is called up to this season. I don't think he finishes the year in uh, Grand Rapids. And I think he plays at least 30 games in Detroit because I think he is going to be that good. And I think you're going to have to either find a way to clear space for him because it's going to be really smart to get him signed uh, this year to burn that first year of the ELC this year so that the Wings can get him closer to restricted free agency. Um, I think that's going to be a key thing. And I think he's going to be so good that you're going to bring him up and do that. And then not, a not-so-bold prediction, I think the Wings end up um, with the worst overall record. Uh, they're right there with Ottawa. A Dylan Larkin injury definitely drops them below Ottawa. So I think it's going to be a rough season, but worst overall means no worse than the fourth draft pick. So you're going to get one of the top five guys. So. Yeah, my uh, well, my my predictions are kind of a matter of public record by now, but I will uh, I will follow up with you on on the Hiroshi thing. So you say he's going to finish third. Give me a point range on that. Third, and he's going to finish with uh, forty seven points. So a really rough year for the Red Wings if their third leading scorer has forty seven points. Yep. All right, all right. Anything else before we uh, we wrap up episode one? No, I think uh, everyone enjoy hockey season. It's going to be a rough year, but we'll, if we buckle in and just find a way to have fun, I think the years to come are going to show a lot more promise. Do you want to give a bourbon take? A lot of the the, the Twitter followers have uh, have requested some some bourbon insights from our foremost expert. Yeah, so um, I think the first question I got was uh, what what bottles do I have ready for the season? So I've got about six bottles of Blanton's downstairs. That's stockpiled for the season. Um, single barrel, we've got the Blanton's Gold and the Blanton Straight from the Barrel all in there. So you find any of them, definitely a bottle worth keeping, definitely a bottle. It's great to give as a Christmas present if you're able to find it at retail price. So that's usually my my go-to for anything if I need to have like a, a, nice, a nice bottle. And you may need it uh, fairly regularly this season. <laughs> we will see. I found I'm finding a way to enjoy um, the moves made such that you don't have to get mad about everything that happens. You just have to recognize that this is going to take time and you just need the right people in place. So let's buckle up and enjoy. That's right. Yeah. All right. I think that's going to do it for us here on episode one guys. If you want to support the show, 
and gals, please make sure that you are subscribing to The Athletic. Uh, you can go to www.theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast or, or just theathletic.com and, and click on the first story you see. There will be a, a good way to get you set up. Thank you guys so much again for listening. We'll be back at it Monday with a free episode on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And we will talk to you then.